all quite chilled, isn't it? I could quite happily just watch that and repeat. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, in the zone. Uh, I think I know most of you here, so I'm Mike, and we're going to continue our series in looking at Sabbath, which is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures. Um, uh, an invitation to enter into the rest God provides for us. And particularly, we're looking at the weekly practice of Sabbath. And... Um, before I go any further this morning, I wanted to start really w- with a confession, which is, um, I've not been good at this. <laughs> so this isn't something that has necessarily characterized my life since I arrived at university 18 years ago. And it's something that I've actually been getting better at over the last couple of years, and particularly the last few months, Beck and I have been, have been looking at how can we build this more consistently into our, into our life, a kind of more sustainable, better rhythm. Because... Um, when we don't, it, it has a detrimental effect on us and potentially the people around us. Um, do you know, uh, when I, I'm a doctor and when I, early on in my training, um, during my SHO years, I'd often do night shifts. And one set of night shifts, I think I'd been doing four, four um, nights in a row. And uh, so Monday through to Friday morning, finishing Friday morning. And they were busy shifts. And um, I remember finishing that kind of 12, 13-hour shift on the Friday, and um, young and sprightly as I was back then, I thought, oh, I've finished my night shift. Bonus day. I've got a Friday. And so rather than doing the sensible thing and getting some sleep, I um, planned in lots of activity, um, which included a game of squash in the morning, followed by... um, Going to church, back when we were at, at uh, the cricket ground, I was helping just put out some chairs. And then in the evening, Beck and I had arranged to have some friends around. Um, some friends of ours, Matt and Annie, came for a meal. And uh, by the time that the meal had happened and we were chatting afterwards, I was just completely dead on my feet and uh, was falling asleep during the conversation, which is a bit unfair, a bit embarrassing, but actually Matt and Annie are really good friends. Um, what was more embarrassing was that I started sleep talking, okay, during the conversation. So they were chatting about stuff, and I was chatting about a whole different set of things based on whatever dream I was going on at the time. My body was essentially saying, you're an idiot, you should have slept ages ago, and was forcing me to do so. Um, actually, that wasn't a very good idea. We do live in a hyper-connected, hyper-stimulated, overworked, unbrounded, stressed-out society where it's all go, 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 squeeze as much as you can into every waking moment. And actually, anxiety levels are constantly going up and quality of sleep going down. We've got devices that enable us to work from home, from the car, from the train, on holiday. We're always immediately contactable. We're plugged in constantly to news and stimulation and entertainment and opinion. Life is full of noise, and as a result, we're exhausted. This morning, I asked people to raise their hands if they feel, at the core of themselves, much of the time, completely exhausted and overwhelmed. And the majority of the hands in the room went up. We're just stressed out people. Sabbath is good news. It's really good news. Because God is good. And Sabbath tells us that God really loves us, wants the best for us. And so this morning, we're going to look at Sabbath again. And we've been looking from all sorts of different angles over the last few weeks. And we've still got a few weeks to go. 
But today specifically, I'm going to want to look at what, what does ta- Sabbath tell us about God? Okay. And so we're going to look at the giver of Sabbath, the experience Sabbath of Sabbath, and the basis of Sabbath. So we're going to be in Matthew 12, verses 1 to 8. We've been reading this for the last few weeks. I'm going to read it through again. And this, this afternoon, we're going to particularly just look at more details in this passage. It's in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so in this scene, Jesus is walking with his disciples alongside fields of corn and chatting. And the next picture will show you what that might have looked like. You see, in... um, ancient Middle East, pathways were built into cornfields. So it was like a, 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 a means of transport. And you'd often have corn on either side. So you can picture Jesus and his friends walking in the sunshine, past golden fields, enjoying good company, good conversation, and some good food, you know, picking some sun-scorched corn and eating it. Think of it as like old, old school version of popcorn. That's kind of what they were doing. And we don't really know whose grain field this was. It doesn't tell us that. But that doesn't matter because in the law of Moses, it was permitted to pluck ears of corn by hand from any person's field. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 23. You were not allowed to get your tools out and start gathering the grain. That's stealing. But actually picking off some with your hand and eating it, that was okay. In fact, that was encouraged. Why? Why? Because that was the kind of generosity and welcome that the people of God were always meant to extend to a neighbor or a foreigner. And the custom demonstrated that every good gift comes from God and there's more than enough goodness to go around. So here the disciples were expressly enjoying the goodness of God in the ordinary moments of life. But it was a Sabbath, a day of rest, and the Pharisees were watching. The Pharisees are a group of people who are very committed to the law of God. But over the years, what actually had begun as a desire to really honor God's word had just become less about God and more about human performance. Less about who God is and more about how I'm doing. So Eugene Peterson uses an analogy to help us understand Pharisees a bit more. He says... Imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge window overlooking a great view. This might be an example of what it might look like. Yeah. Green fields, a beautiful lake with the light catching it and sparkling. In the distance, snow-capped mountains. Several times a day, you would just stop what you're doing and have a look at that view and just be taken in by it. 
One afternoon, you notice some bird poo on the window. So you get your cloth out, and you just start scrubbing it. You don't want that one there. And, and then another day, some visitors come with a tribe of kids with grubby hands. Let's just call them the Blabers for now. And um, they put their hands all over your window, and then you notice smudges here and fingerprints there, and no sooner have they left that you get your sponge back out, and you're frantically scrubbing that window. But over time, keeping the window clean becomes something of an obsession. You accumulate ladders and buckets and sponges, and you put scaffolding up on the outside and on the inside, and signs that say, do not touch. And after all this, you have the cleanest window imaginable, but it's now been years since you looked through it and took in the view. You've become a Pharisee. See, the law and the prophets were supposed to be the window through which we gaze upon the beauty and the majesty and the goodness of God. But for the Pharisees, the letter of the law had stolen their focus such that they could no longer see God, even when he was right in front of them in the person of Christ. It's possible to, in all sorts of different ways, get so caught up with some details of the Christian life that you miss the one who it's all about. The Sabbath was a gift from God, and it was to be a day of rest and refreshment and recreation, a weekly rhythm of pausing and and seeing God through the scriptures and in the world that he's made, like looking through a window at a glorious scene. And it was always intended to draw people to God, not keep them from him. But the poor Pharisees were just so wound up with trying to rest right that they, they missed the giver of rest. And in the process, laid heavy burdens on the people around them. Restlessness can become contagious. This, this teaching series on the Sabbath that we're doing at the moment is not designed to give you something else to add into your hectic life like uh, do Sabbath. That's not what it is. We're not placing in front of you a performance indicator for your spiritual walk. You know, how good is your Sabbath? That'll tell us a little bit about how you're doing. That's not what this is at all. There there are going to be no Sabbath police uh, in Oasis Church. It's not a new serving team that you can get involved with after. Okay? That's just not on the... That's not an option. Um, Actually, if you treat Sabbath that way, if it becomes a means of appeasing your conscience it will more likely obscure God than bring you close to him. Sabbath is an invitation to enter into what he freely provides. It's not something you earn. It's a rhythm to embrace, intended to sharpen your view of God and heighten your enjoyment of him. And actually, it was always, it was always meant to be that way. You, if you read about how Moses talks about the Sabbath in Deuteronomy 5 then you get a picture of that. You see, in Deuteronomy 5, Moses is retelling the Ten Commandments to the people of God. Okay, And at verse 12, he gets to the Sabbath, and he explains that the Sabbath is to be a day of rest for everyone, young and old, servant and free, local person, foreigner, humans, animals, the land. It's to be a time of rest for all. And then in verse 15... It says this, it says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. 
in Egypt, God's people were made to work night and day with no rest. In Egypt, where they were enslaved, their very existence was justified by their degree of productivity, how much they could do, working hard to prove themselves useful to their enslavers, always pleasing others, driven, literally, to work. No rest. But God had delivered them from that slavery precisely so that they can enter into his rest and no longer be defined by their work and productivity, rather be defined by his claim on them. He is their maker. He is their savior. He is their God. They're to be his people. And so Sabbath was about celebrating freedom, enjoying God's rest. I just wonder how easily can we, like the Pharisees in Matthew 12, fall back into slavishly working to justify ourselves as if still living in Egypt? We can be driven by the expectations that there are, either within ourselves, things we ought to be doing, or expectations outside of ourselves, ways that we could please other people. Always more to do. You know, the house could be tidier. Um, the kids could go to more clubs. The essay could be better. There's always more emails to send, more revision to do, more people to please. And we can become enslaved by a drivenness either to prove or to please. We want to be liked, so we can't afford to stop for a day. We want to be successful, so we can't afford to stop for a day. We want to be comfortable and have nice things, so we can't afford to stop for a day. Jesus calls us out of that exhausting existence into his love, into, into seeing that he freely provides for us as his beloved. Not merited by our performance, not maintained by our effort, a gift. And the weekly rhythm of Sabbath speaks that to us. We enter into that. Sabbath is about freedom from slavery to fear, the fear of man, the fear of lacking, the fear of losing reputation, the fear of getting behind in the world. The rhythm of Sabbath says, life's not all about me. It's not all down to me. I don't keep the world spinning. God does. The cornfields belong to him. I don't, I'm not being unrealistic. There will be some times in your life when you have to overwork. You know, when I was doing my final exams, I had to overwork, you know. It was just a period of life when that was necessary. But that can't be sustained forever. And um, Sabbath just confronts us with our humanity and our human needs and with the goodness of God, who is for us and not against us. Sabbath is about the giver. This is what Jesus is communicating as he responds to the Pharisees while he's walking through the cornfields. And the first thing that he does, you'll notice in the passage in, in Matthew 12, is he refers to a story about David found in, in 1 Samuel, verse 20, verse chapter 21. Now, that was many centuries after the time of Moses, when the law was given. And at the time, in, in, in 1 Samuel 21, Israel has a king, and the king is Saul. And David is on the run from Saul, because Saul, although he is king of Israel, was on borrowed time. Precisely because Saul had turned away from trusting God to instead trusting himself, take matters into his own hands. 
And so God had departed from him. And and David was the anointed one. He was the true king in waiting. And he was at the moment serving in Saul's house. And Saul just couldn't stand the fact that David was the true king. And so Saul restlessly plotted against David to kill him. And when David learned that, he fled from Saul's house and he took some friends with him. And in 1 Samuel 21, you can read that David's on the run. And he's harried and he's tired and he's anxious and he's afraid of the future and he's hungry. So he finds a shrine where the priests were ministering. And David and his friends had traveled a long way and they still had a long way to go. They need food. There was no food. Apart from holy bread. The the bread of the presence. You can read about that in Leviticus 24. These are special loaves that were baked fresh every week. I mean, the, the... The aroma of fresh bread would fill the place and they'd be put on a gold table in front of the holy place where the Lord is. And they were supposed to represent a a kind of thanksgiving offering to God. William Barclay explains that they were a symbolic offering in which God was thanked for the gift of sustaining food. The bread was there to say, God is the one who brings food from the ground to feed us and to represent the sustaining, refreshing presence of God. But only the priests could eat that bread. But on this occasion, David and his friends on the run, they were given the bread to eat by the priest at the time, Ahimelech. That was not lawful. But human need took priority over ritual precision. And the heart of God was being expressed over the letter of the law. Mercy not sacrifice. That, that's a quote from Hosea 6, 6 that Jesus says. And the full, the full um, verse in that passage is something like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, the knowledge of God over burnt offerings. To know God. David and his friends in that moment of need and anxiety and hunger knew God as the one who brings shelter, as the one who brings refreshment, as the one who takes mercy upon the needy. Why does Jesus refer to this story? He's making the point, the Sabbath is not a task to perform, it's a gift to tell us who God is. He is a shelter for the harried. He is a refuge for the anxious and the overwhelmed. And just perhaps you're feeling like that today. Because you're feeling overwhelmed by life and that you haven't got the resources within yourself. True. But the Lord is for you, a shelter, a refuge. He knows you, he feeds you, he welcomes you. And as the Pharisees are confronted on that cornfield walk, they fail to see that one greater than David was there with them. The true king of Israel, who, like David, was leading his friends, the disciples, into an experience of the grace of God as he gave them something to eat, just as David had given his friends something to eat. But the overthrown Pharisees, like Saul, did not like it. They resisted God's rest in favor of self-sufficiency. Don't you do the same. It's not all down to you. Next, in Matthew 12, Jesus Jesus referenced the priests in the temple. And he says, 
The priests do lots of things on the Sabbath which could be considered work. I mean, they light a fire that's expressly forbidden. They carry animals. They present sacrifices. But Jesus says they're guiltless. Why? Well, they too on the Sabbath are communicating God to people. All the sacrifices in the temple are speaking a message of the grace and the goodness of God. He's the one who provides for the forgiveness of sins. He's the one who makes a way for us to draw near to him. He's the one who carries our heavy burdens. And Sabbath is about communicating who God is. That's why the activity of the priests in the temple was proclaiming Sabbath, in a sense. But in, in verse 6 of Matthew 12, Jesus lets off dynamite when he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, I've got to understand that for Jews in the first century, nothing was greater than the temple. Nothing. It's like, um, it's like saying to a Liverpool fan, something greater than Anfield is here. You know, like, hmm? I, just we not compute. Um, that's terrible French. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I am not compute. Anyway, um, for a first century Jew, nothing was greater than the temple because the temple was the place where people met with God. The very presence of God came and went on the temple. What can be greater than the meeting place with God? Nothing but God himself. And in Christ, God has taken on flesh and made his home amongst us. That's what John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. He's tabernacled amongst us. He's the true meeting place with God. Jesus, if you want to meet with God, come to Jesus. He's the true sacrifice of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the true way to the Father, the Lord of the Sabbath, the giver of rest. He is something greater than the temple. And even today, he calls you to himself, to come to him. You are not at the center of the universe. You do not keep the world spinning. You can have a day off each week because God really loves you. And he's expressed that love to you in giving you his son, your Lord. Sabbath is about God. So more practically, how can we be more deliberate in entering into the experience of Sabbath? What, what has all this to do with weekly routines? How can they help us? Well, from the earliest stages of our lives, we're formed by rhythms and habits. Okay, children learn through routine and repetition. Okay, that's how they learn how to walk, how to talk, etc. A child learns to talk because their parents and others talk at them. And then after a while, they start making noise. And then after a while longer, that noise becomes a word. And uh, my second daughter, Anna, had a rather unusual first word. Her first word was hot. Uh, she would just look at me and say, hot. Which, you know, not many people have said that to me before. So I was like, oh, I'll take that. <laughs> Young girl. Um, actually, it's because the oven was hot, and we were always saying, don't go into the oven, hot, hot. And so her first word was hot. Um, kids learn through repetition and routine. In the same way, they, they learn about rest. Kids learn rest through repetition and routine. We have the bedtime routine, and bath time, uh, story time, bedtime. They have to kind of work out. You can't just, they don't just stop. You have to work them down to a place of rest. In the same way, we get formed by habits and routines. We need to take on practices that form us, enabling us to rest and to become conscious to the goodness of God and who he is. 
Developing a habit of weekly practice of Sabbath provides space for us to become more conscious to the goodness and grace of God. It's not about having one very super spiritual day a week. Okay? Um, Jesus, in that, um, in that scene in, in Matthew 12, is on a walk chewing corn with his mates. Okay? There's no mood music. There's no intense feelings going on. There's no meditation. He's just with his, he's with his friends. It's very normal. But God is present in that normality. Now, there's nothing wrong with mood music. You can put some mood music on, that's fine, but it's not necessary. One ancient Sabbath custom is that fathers would take a spoonful of honey at the very beginning of the Sabbath day and give it to their children and ask them to just eat it. And of course, they loved that. As a way of showing you're about to enter into something sweet, the rest of God. I don't need to be told twice to start off my Saturday with some croissants and, you know, pancakes. Uh, sweetness at the beginning of the day. We did that yesterday. To, um, to experience with our senses, we're about to enjoy the sweetness of God's rest, which he provides for us. Practicing Sabbath is really, for me, more and more, the actual practice of it is about becoming more present in the moment. So... Actually, actually consciously enjoying the day that I'm in. The psalmist says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So last week, that looked like, last Saturday, that looked like going berry picking along the River Ray with the, with the girls and some friends. Um, and we just, you know, took in the sights and the smells and the sounds, the babbling River Ray <laughs> and the tweeting birds. No, and, and looking at, the, uh, looking at the, the trees and the berries, and actually tasting the berries, not just, you know, tasting them while on my phone, but then you're not really tasting, but actually tasting, being conscious to them. Trying to pick one that was way out of reach, and so I had my friend Pete holding onto my ankle while I was reaching for it. It was fun. It was just good fun. It dodging the bikes that were coming through. Just being present. Increasingly, I'm trying to put my phone away one day a week. Um, because actually, if people can't contact me, the world will keep spinning because I'm not the center of the universe. And I can fall into thinking that I am, that I'm that essential. And Sabbath is humbling because it tells me, no, you're not. God is. Put the phone away, pick that berry. And it's just good. Also, Sabbath is an opportunity just to get some time to be with God, not just in those everyday moments, but also just to open up the word, just allow him to show himself to us more. For me, I often will pray the prayer of exchange on a Sabbath. God, I give you my anxiety. I receive your peace. Jesus, I give you my doubts. I receive your promise. I give you my heaviness. I receive your lightness. I give you my uh, stress. I receive your finished work for me. Can I just make a brief point also about our Sunday gatherings, though, here too? Now, your Sabbath may not be a Sunday. Your Sabbath might be a Sunday. Classically, Sunday has been a Sabbath day. It's not for us. But the Bible is really clear about the importance of gathering together, as we are today, to meet with the people of God in the presence of God. It's really important. 
to encourage one another. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he's right there with them. It's exciting. We're going to meet with God every time. Every Sunday, we're going to meet with God. And each week, we do some things kind of routinely. We embrace one another. We uh, welcome new faces. We sing songs about the goodness of God. We hear the Bible taught. We gather around the Lord's table in partaking communion. We give our money. We confess our failings and our fears. We speak God's grace over each other. These are beautiful practices that happen every week by routine, almost as a habit. And in doing so, they form us into a people who can be shaped by the giver of rest. But, you know, it is easy to fall into thinking that our gathered setting needs to be a moment of intense spiritual experience or emotional high. You know, particularly in our um, tradition of churches, in the charismatic evangelical, you can, which is, you know, that's wonderful. We believe the spirit is alive and active amongst his people, so we expect to encounter the spirit and enjoy the gifts of the spirit, but you can fall into thinking that it's, unless it's intense, it's not enough. You know, you need something intense. A.J. Swoboda says that in his book on the Sabbath, Time and again in the Bible, the language regarding the Sabbath is that we enter it. Sabbath is not self-centered. Sabbath is not man-made. Sabbath is a day that God has gone in advance to prepare for us. So when you gather here on a Sunday, you do not need to drum up some kind of feelings or crisis. Instead, you may come and be caught up in the same Sunday routines which are all designed to enable you to gaze upon God like looking out of a window to see an amazing view. Tish Harrison Warren, in her great book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, comments that we are worn-out believers and we're often prone to embrace a faith that's full of adrenaline and excitement and activity. But we have to learn together to approach a saviour who invites the weary to come to him for rest. She goes on to say, gathered worship can become a place of self-reliance and striving where we seek to achieve a particular spiritual mood or experience by our own efforts. Instead, Jesus calls us to give up our faith in our own spiritual striving and to abide in him. It's a wonderful invitation. Pressure's off. You don't have to drum anything up. Each week we gather does not have to be a spectacular earth-shattering experience. You don't need that. You need God. And every Sunday, God is here waiting for us to enter into the rest that he already has for us. And that just brings me to the final and brief point at the end, which is that what's the basis of this? What's the basis of Sabbath? We've talked about the giver of Sabbath. We've talked about the experience of Sabbath and some of the ways that we might build that into our lives. What's the basis? Well, in Matthew 12, after this cornfield conversation, Jesus goes into the synagogue and um, he heals a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees just flip out. They can't handle it. It's too much for them. So they plot to kill Jesus. And let's pick up what Jesus then goes on to, to do. It says in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, they're plotting, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, 
and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is the servant king, one greater than David, the one who came not to be served but to serve. Jesus is one greater than the temple. He is the meeting place with God. And all are welcome to find their rest in him. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. What does that mean in our language? It's not just for religious people. It's for the religious and for the secular. Whatever your background, whatever your race, whatever your family, whatever your religious experience, however overwhelmed and anxious you feel by life at the moment, Maybe today you're feeling like a bruised reed, barely keeping it together, or a smoldering wick, just about flickering a light. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. This Sabbath chapter in Matthew 12 climaxes with that wonderful proclamation, the prophecy of Isaiah. This is who Jesus is. He comes not to crush, but to restore. Not to snuff out, but to breathe life. Not to lay heavy burdens on you, but to lift them from you. You see, Jesus entered into our experience of restlessness at the cross. And there, on Good Friday, Jesus worked on our behalf to the bitter end, to the very last working hours of the week on that Holy Week, on Good Friday. Until at the beginning of the Sabbath, as the sun was setting, in the Hebrew calendar, it was an evening-morning routine. Just as the end of that Friday, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished. The work is done. He works for us, and his work secures our rest, and his death secures our life, and his gift pays our debt, and his cry welcomes us home. And then he is laid down in the tomb on Saturday, their Sabbath, and on, on the Sunday, rises. Resurrection life at the beginning of the week, declaring peace be with you. Jesus gave himself fully for you so that you can give yourself fully to him. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. The basis of our rest is what he has done for us. You've nothing to prove. You don't need to please everyone. Your father is pleased with you in Christ. Rest in his finished work. And it enables you to embrace a rhythm of Sabbath that says one day a week I can stop because I'm not at the center of the universe. Jesus is. This is really good news. Can I pray for us? Why don't you maybe just close your eyes. Listen, this is the challenge to me. I'm one of the narcissists who thinks this is very important. <laughs> I think we're all a bit like that. We've all got a bit of narcissism in us. Jesus is God, and he's good, and he's for you. Embrace it. It's good news. Lord, I just pray for each of us here. That Jesus, we would hear this wonderful announcement, the announcement of the gospel that Jesus is Lord. I thank you, Jesus, you have finished all the work that was needed and you've declared it is finished, it is done. 
We do not need to strive. We do not need to justify ourselves. We can't. We've been taken out of that position. You're the one who justifies. I thank you that, Lord, you love us and you receive us as we are. And you've made the way for us to come and to rest, knowing we are beloved. And thank you, as a result of that, we can make that very practical by each week just having a, a sustainable rhythm where we're not go, 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 but where we go six days and we rest. And in that moment of rest, we take in your goodness and the whole creation shouts aloud of the goodness of God. Lord, make us aware, make us alive, make us conscious of all your goodness around us. Help us to receive deep in our souls that wonderful rest that comes from the Lord of the Sabbath. And may that spill over into a life with a, a rhythm of rest. And I ask it for the name of, for the glory of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, for the good of us all. Amen.